sitting here in studio for another episode of Mentors for Military. I'm joined by John Waters, and uh, many of you may remember him in a show that we did as a guest, and now he's joining me today as a co-host. Yeah, how about that? Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. And then also on the phone with us is Chris Van Sant. What's going on, Chris? Nothing, man. Glad to be here. Super pumped for Brad. So we're going to dive in uh, to the episode here with Brad Thomas. And Brad was on. I was looking back at the time frame. It was two years ago, episode 177. But we didn't really dive into and talk about some of the stuff I think that we're going to get into today. First off, let's just say thank you because you flew all the way in uh, to Atlanta. Of course, you're going to see a lot of your friends and everything, and um, which is really cool here in the local area. But I appreciate you taking time out to at least stop by and do the podcast. Oh no, thanks for having me. It's uh, it's a pleasure, and it's a pleasure to do it in person. Yeah, much better in person than what it is when we have to do it remote. That's for sure. Yeah, and I think differently now too. Uh, people have gotten accustomed to Zoom mm-hmm. and any other type of video, you know, yeah. format, but uh, at the time, nobody was doing that. Now everybody, you know, wants to jump on and zoom. And so at least you can see one another, but yeah, it, it helps. But I gotta say, man, when we started doing a lot more in-studio shows, it has been so much better. Not to mention we can go ahead and crash like, you know, I don't know, six, eight, 10 at one time frame, And I can have some peace of mind for a, a little while and, and do the day job and sure. then get back into it. So it's really cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, Plus you got like a box of Kleenex here. So if I start uh, <laughs> tearing up, you can, you know, you, you could walk over here and give me a little give hug. Me a pat and hug. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I doubt that very many people have gone back and listened to ep- episode 177 and it's been so long, quite they frankly, should. They, they, should. They, should. <laughs> they should, but I figured that we kind of start off with maybe the beginnings and you know, why was it that you came into the army in the first place? Cause uh, I don't recall. Yeah. Let's see. So I was, uh, playing music before, uh, before the military, I, I worked as a lifeguard and did a little bit of college as a classical guitar major and was playing in a band and it had taken me uh, the better part of like, I don't know, six years to kind of like finesse this group of people and replace this guy with the right guy. And then we finally get this person. And it, it takes a long time to find the right folks, whether it's military or whether it's, you know, uh, music, whatever it might be. And anyway, just kind of got to the point where it was unfulfilling and it fell apart. And it was right at the time when we could have like actually gone and done something like one of the dudes in the band's mother was uh, Leonard Skinner's tour manager. And so really, we had been promised uh, to go up to New York and record demos and all that kind of stuff. And anyway, it just all fell apart. And I was I was super kind of heartbroken by the whole thing. And a buddy of mine kind of simultaneously a bunch of stuff happened. Uh, December of 89, the Rangers jumped in and invaded Panama. And I saw that this was kind of all happening at the same time. Um, a buddy of mine who had joined the air force was home for leave for the first time since he had gone through basic training in AIT and, uh, kind of like a conglomeration of all three of those things put me in a situation where, uh, my air force buddy was telling me about, uh, these guys that came and talked to his basic training class at the very end and they were from a special unit and they were looking for guys that would volunteer to go, you know, jump in behind enemy lines and rescue down pilots (laughs) and things like that. And I was like, Hey, that sounds pretty cool. So that led me to the recruiter. Um, I kind of got tied up with the air force recruiter and, and actually joined the air force. 
and uh, delayed entry program. Yeah, delayed entry pro- delayed entry program. I, I signed up with the auspice that they were going to give me a contract. They told me that they would give me a contract, and then was leaving the recruiters one day, and the army guy said, "Hey, what what's going on? You look kind of beat down." And uh, I went into his office, and he says, "What do you, what do you want to do?" And I said, "I don't know, Delta Force." And that was the first thing that came out of my mouth. Yeah, so he was you like, know about Delta Force? He goes, he goes get, it, get out of here. Like, no. The TV show? Is yeah. that what it was? So he says, well, you got to do something before that, like special forces. And I go, okay, I'll do that. And he said, well, you can't do that either. You got to do something before that, like Ranger. And so that's, that's literally where it started. So I said, okay, I'll do that. And he gave me a Ranger contract, went to the MEP Center. Uh, it took about nine months from the time I signed up to the time I could enter and, uh, and that was kind of it. What did you tell the Air Force recruiter? Uh, it was a big deal um, because I had actually signed the papers. The Army recruiter drove me to Andrews Air Force Base, and I had to walk into this. It was a big deal. Like, you can't tell him I drove you. You know, really? Uh, like, yeah, this, the this Army guy. Now. Like, this is I'm, mine. <laughs> yeah, I'm stealing. You know, dude from the Air Force or whatever. So, um, I go in. And I'm like, you know, long haired, dope smoking wacko and uh i'm standing in front of this full bird colonel who's screaming and yelling at me about the mistake i'm making because i'm leaving the air force that has the best military installations and golf courses and you don't realize you know what a mistake you're making blah 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 so i was like whatever dude just sign my paper so i can leave and uh and that's that's how it happened that's crazy. Just yeah. like that. Score for the Army recruiter. Yeah. He just sniped you. you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, he was just waiting. Yeah. Good on the Army. Picking off. <laughs> Let the Air Force guy do all the work. <laughs> right. I used to do that for the Marines. Actually, for the when I was in recruiting duty, wait for the guys coming out of the Marine office. I never really messed too much with the Air Force guys or anything because they'd go in and, and they didn't care if they had a two-year waiting list or not. It was just, yeah, whatever. I'm going to Air Force. So it was usually never a thing that we could ever get those guys. But Marines, yeah. The snipe them. Yeah, all the time. I talked to a lot of kids. They hit me up on social media and they asked me the most common question is like, what do I need to do to prepare? And, you know, like, okay, what did I do to prepare 30 years ago or however long ago that was <laughs> is probably a lot different than what you need to do to prepare now. Yeah. I literally just showed up. I didn't do anything, you know, like yeah. didn't even get a haircut really just showed up and, uh, you know, everything like in the military, it's just designed crawl, walk, run. They, you're never going to get too much at one time. And once you master that, you kind of move on to the next thing. And that was very much the same thing that I experienced. You know, I didn't do anything to prepare. Um, the other thing is I try and guide people to, you know, there are, are places that you could be assigned like the Rangers that are going to pay you slightly better. And, uh, the demographic of people is probably just a little bit, you know, depending on what you want to do, um, probably just a little bit different. And, you know, when I first got to Chris, you can probably jump on this one, but when I got to, um, 30th AG, which is like the reception battalion at Fort Benning before you go to basic training and it was like, this is like jail. It was like literally like people from prison, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it was 1990, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was, I was, I was five years behind you and I can attest to feeling exactly the same way. Like I actually, they talk about going down range 
when you actually go to your basic training battalion. I remember thinking, I can't wait till that happens because it can't be worse than this. Yeah. Yeah, no <laughs> doubt. What a zoo. I had like money stolen and, you know, all kinds of stuff. It was just a bunch of scumbags. Uh, wait, what do they call the, um, what do they call that area out there, basic training, the barracks and stuff? Uh, Sand Hill? No. Well, you went through. Starships. Starships. Yeah. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. I went, the last time I was down there, uh, I actually drove by my old basic training unit and got a little video and it, it didn't even look the same, you know? Yeah. I have some pictures from it that I posted on Instagram and stuff like that. And there was like a payphone bank behind me. <laughs> you know? uh, We'd wait in line. Yeah, exactly. You get like three minutes to make your phone call. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. He's showing our age there for sure. So after that, you end up going through uh, OSIT or into OSIT. Now, did you get 11 x-rays? So you got assigned an MOS uh, or I came in 11 Bravo. So oh, I, I had okay. an interesting thing happen in that. Uh, so the summer I signed in May of 90 and I actually went to basic training in November of 90. And over that summer, desert shield kicked off. Mm, and did. so they opened the floodgates and uh, everybody and their brother was joining the military. And they, they, you know, when I joined, it was literally a problem that I had been allergic to milk as a kid. They were like, I don't know if we can take you, you know, we've got to have all this medical stuff done. And, uh, it was a huge ordeal. So anyway, and you think about it now, it's like people with face tattoos. Right, and, <laughs> yeah. So how many DUIs do you have? Like, uh, four. Um, anyway, so one of the things that the army recruiter did for me that I didn't even realize he did, I didn't understand other than, I have a contract that guarantees that if I make it, I'll go through basic training, AIT for infantry, right. airborne school, and, and then to rip. the ranger indoctrination program. That was like my pipeline. Yep. It guaranteed me as long as I made it from one to the next that I had that opportunity. Um, that's kind of all I knew. I didn't even really understand what MOS was. They could assign me up to be a ranger cook and I wouldn't have had, you know, <laughs> I, I wouldn't have known any, any differently. So over the summer desert shield kicks off, I get into basic training and they're ramping up like right as I grass graduated basic and AIT started, uh, was when desert storm kicked off. So now it was actually, you know, the hundred hour war, whatever happened. Get after it. Um, our, our battalion commander. So they got every starship, that was active and in uh, the same you know place in training, they put us in this gigantic formation and this you know full bird colonel or lieutenant colonel comes out and he's on this podium and he says, men, you're all going to be mechanized. And I was oh. like, I don't, I don't, first of all, I don't know what that means, but I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't think that sounds cool. And so they turned every unassigned Airborne, every unassigned infantry, every person that did not have a Ranger 11 Bravo Ranger contract, they turned them all mechanized. Oh my God. I was there at Benning at this time frame <clears throat> when Desert Storm kicked off. But, um, I, and, and you probably remember even with going probably after that to Airborne School on Rip, there was nobody on that installation afterwards. No. Yeah. It was at Tumbleweeds rolling across yep. it pretty much. But, I didn't. I knew there was a time frame where they started signing people a lot more to eleven mics. I didn't realize that was the starting point. Yep. 
Everybody went to Kelly Hill. Everybody so, it continued for a number of years, too. Yeah, it was kind of interesting because all the guys, when I was in basic training, the guys that I befriended and, you know, we started hanging out, a lot of them had, um, had gotten a bonus for signing unassigned airborne. So they gave them like a $15,000 bonus for signing, for signing as an unassigned airborne contract. And then they would just tell them, you can just volunteer for RIP at the end of airborne school. Yeah. And uh, so I, I was kind of upset because, hey, I didn't get a bonus. You know, all these guys got a bonus. I didn't get a bonus. Oh, why didn't they tag that on to the option 40? Don't, I don't, no clue. But I got, I got no bonus. But what I did get was guaranteed. That, but they got screwed. They got, yeah, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't end up riding in the back of a Bradley. They, thank did, they become, <laughs> did they become 11 Mike Airborne? Not not <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, we, uh, Chris and I rode in the back of a Bradley in Iraq. <laughs> to a target that was supposed to be uh, extremely hostile. And to this day, that's probably one of the scariest things I did in combat. <laughs> because yeah. where we were going was, um, it was like kind of rural and there were just nothing but um, canals, you know, next to it. And we could see through this like thermal camera on the thing, we could see where the guy was driving and it would be like, start to veer off to the left, back on the road, start to veer off. And you're like, Dude, we're ending up in the canal. We're all drowning <laughs> yeah. in the back of this thing. How did it all end? Drown <laughs> in the back of a Bradley. Yeah. So the, all those guys that uh, got the airborne option, they end up um, eleven Mike airborne. I have no clue. Yeah. I didn't see him. Okay. Yeah, I I didn't see him after airborne school. And there were a handful of us that were like, you know, my battle buddy from basic training, and a handful of other dudes. That, like, we ended up kind of in the same platoon in airborne school. Mm. And then after that, and you know, you got to rip and they kind of broke you down uh, a little bit further. So maybe you were in a room with your buddies, maybe you weren't. Um, but most of those cats I didn't see after rip. I was just 91 at this time for yeah, me so, with the airborne. Yeah. Yep. yep. That um, would have been like February, end of February into March of 91. Do you remember because, your company? Uh, Charlie company. Oh man. That was around the same time frame I went to airborne school. That's what I was wondering. Like June time frame, May, June? No, it was it would have been March, April. Okay. So I I uh I finished airborne school and we didn't get our last jump until like six o'clock at night on that Friday. And so we missed the rip cadre coming and picking us up. So we got picked up by the rip cadre later, but then on Monday. We got a weekend off, and then on Monday they came and picked us up, and I sat in rip holdover for three weeks, waiting for the next rip class oh, to start. You're kidding! Which was like, you know, if I'd sat in airborne holdover, it wouldn't have been a big deal. I could probably rake some pea gravel, yeah, you know, and then <laughs> hang out at night at the airborne PX and talk shit to the, you know, non-airborne qualified people walking around. Yeah, I did tower week, you know, <laughs> stuff like that, but. Um, yeah, I got, I sat in a rip holdover for three weeks, just getting tortured. What was that like? Yeah. Yeah. Just literally get tortured for three weeks. Pre-rip. Yeah. I guess it would be yeah. called now, right? Yep. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, it was good. I mean, physically demanding for sure. You know? Yeah. Oh my God. Actually, I was thinking it may have been 92 that I went through. Um, but anyway, going forward after that, now rip at that time frame was four weeks. Uh, maybe three and a half weeks, yeah. something like that. I ended up at, I ended up yeah. at three seven five. Um, I think it was like April twenty seventh or twenty eighth. Okay, yeah. 
you guys were in the old barracks at that time frame, the old <laughs> yeah. compound. I mean, they're still World there. Two. They are. They put. Yeah. I think they put a new shell on them though. Uh, uh, no, they didn't. No, no, no. I was I just said, there uh, Friday. I didn't even pay attention because you know they got new barracks now, a whole new area command yeah. headquarters. It's really nice, you yeah. know what they have set up now. So I was leaving there in '98, and they had broken ground on all the new barracks and okay everything else. But I never got a chance. And the first time that I was back at Fort Benning, I want to say it was like 2012 or 2013. How was that like for you? Uh, it was really interesting. Um, you know, all the places that I, you know, hung out and ate and all the decent restaurants and places that I frequented, you know, I'm telling the people that I was with, I'm like, let's go here, let's go there. You know, I'll show you this cool place. And we would roll up and it'd be like, ghost, ghost town, you know, abandoned building all <laughs> shut down or torn down just a parking lot. Yeah. You know? Ranger Joe's is still there. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I went by there today. Did you? Yeah, <laughs> just to take pictures so I could send it to some of my buddies. <laughs> get and the, to and get the, your haircut there? in the col- in the Colony Inn. Oh my God! It's still there. It I is mean, still there. It, it's so it's it, it's um. This is going to be like a super fast forward, and I don't I don't want to fast forward the conversation here. But uh, somebody what? asked me the other day. They were they were like, what what did you tap into for like album two? Um, what did you tap into as far as like your inspiration for it? And I've been coming down here quite a bit over the last, I'll say three years and more than I'd ever been, you know, prior to that, you know, by 20 years or so. And it's so crazy because when I drive around just some of the roads and everything else, it's like, I don't feel like I left. I spent eight years here. Yeah. And the first four years, five years that I spent, you know, in the Rangers, like you didn't know what was coming day to day. I didn't know if I was going to even be there tomorrow. You know, um, it was so challenging. There were so many people quitting. It was just such a tough environment. Yeah. About every two years people would wash out. And, and because of, you know, it being such a kind of challenging time and just getting messed with and going to ranger school and then coming back, you know, just all of that. Um, living in the swamps of Fort Benning in July and August. I mean, just absolute misery. And the soundtrack of our life at that time was pretty rad. You know, it was Nirvana. It was Soundgarden, Stone Temple Pilots and all that stuff. And... Um, I don't know. There's, there's a feeling of like uncertainty and uneasiness that comes when I think back to that time, it it's, and I'd be interested to get Chris involved in the conversation here. When I think back over 20 years in the military, absolutely the period that feels the longest is that four years and, you know, maybe even three years in the Rangers. It feels like that was 15 years long. You know, and I spent more time than I spent in B Company, um, you know, which was five years, basically. I spent more time on a team with Chris at Delta, you know. It it doesn't feel that way. You know, when I look back on it now, it feels like that, you know, 36 months of initial kind of Ranger stuff was you know, just this huge portion of my life. And I look back and I go, man, I was only buddies with that guy for like a year and a half. 
you know, and yeah. he and I you still know, talk, but go ahead, Chris. I, I was going to say, I don't know what that is, Brad, but you're right. I, I, I did rip twice. Um, I, I told, I think I told Rob this before, but I got, I got booted cause they recalled my second week there. So I didn't get stuck in the holdover for rip. I only had to do an extra week before the next class started, but, but that time period of going to rip and then being assigned to regiment, hell, I only spent like 14 months there. And that 14 months, like Brad said, when I look back on it, feels like a much longer stretch of time. And I'm not sure if that, um, if it is, it's because it's early in your career and you're, it's an unknown and, and you literally do feel like every day you might not be there the next day. Or if it's just because it's early in your career and it carries a lot of weight and it shaped a lot of who you are for the years to come. So I'm, I'm really not sure why, but I absolutely know that feeling. So, yeah. I, you know, this was a time frame too, though, where it was like serious high and tight spit shine boots. Uniform had to be like severely starched and pressed. Very, very different than what it is now for sure. Yeah, it was it was being under the microscope every day, yeah. all day. You lived in the barracks. Uh, your team room was your barracks room, you know. So you hung out in your barracks room all day if you weren't out training or doing something else. And that was, you know, once you once you got to ranger school and you became like a team leader or something like that, then of course you get to torture the privates and you weren't getting tortured anymore. But you know, it just it never ended. And uh, it it I think it has to do with for me, maybe like your brain is still in development. And so, you know, what they say, a uh, male's brain doesn't completely mature until you're 27 or so. Yeah, yeah, so say 25 or so, yeah. You wow. know, by the, time, by the time I went to selection for Delta and I'm 28 or whatever, um, I am who I am. Like, there isn't a whole lot of molding of the clay at that point, you know. I kind of, you know, figured it all out. And I don't know, but I think... I think because it was such an impressionable and still, you know, brain development happening, it becomes like a part of you and it just feels totally different. So anyway, when I'm down at Fort Benning, it just, I, I have that feeling. It just, it's not an unsettling feeling now because I made it, you know, so I don't, I don't have to worry about making it tomorrow, but I don't know. It just takes me right back to that time. And it's, uh, it's pretty neat, you know, that sounds exactly like my air force career, just different. But no. <laughs> the, I mean, it's, it's, it's always being on the chopping block, always having that pressure. Is it, I mean, the, the culmination, is it becoming a team leader when that finally, that transition happens and now you're not necessarily always worried about? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because I had this uh, conversation the other day with somebody and it had to do with how the Ranger alumni treats their own versus how the unit alumni treats their own. And whether you got fired from the Rangers or sent down the road or quit or whatever, I mean, if you spent a certain amount of time there, and I don't know what that time is, this is what the conversation had to do with. The conversation was, at what point is dude a part of this organization? Whether he leaves under unfavorable circumstances or not, like, he can always claim ownership of it and we will always have him, right? And I don't know what that is. I don't know if it's he proved himself on a mission. You know, nowadays it's probably different with combat. 
yeah. pre-combat, it was very different. I, I totally know where you're coming from because there were guys who had spent a, you know, a year and a half, two years or whatever that were part of a regiment, three years, but maybe they didn't even go to uh, ranger school. As a matter of fact, you know, they, they decided to leave before that time frame. They don't, most of them that I know don't consider themselves a ranger today. They absolutely claim that if they spend a short amount of time and we're in the same boat and they probably had a combat deployment or two, you know, or more underneath their belt. And maybe that, like you said, is what does it. But I can totally uh, see what you're describing there because it was a very different era. So what is that line of which you're now accepted as part of the community? Yeah, I don't know. That's, that's, that's what I'm, you know, that was the whole conversation. It was trying to figure out like, at what point are you a part of the family and whether, whatever happens, you know, whether you're killed, whether you're, I can tell you as somebody that, that, that left the regiment that I got a DUI and a left after a little over a year's time for years and years and years, I never felt like I was a part of that club. Um, even though that's where I started my, my army career, it wasn't until many, many years later, and I'm talking right before and then after retirement, that I realized that that short time that I spent in regiment shaped who I was for the rest of my military career. Yep. It impacted me and, and how I approached things for the 19 years that came after that. So when I hit that point, that's when me personally, when I started going, Yes, I, I wasn't afraid to say I started out in the Ranger Regiment and I left because I made a mistake. Um, I don't know what I don't know what the acceptance is on the other side of that. Honestly, I don't care anymore. I'm proud to say I was a part of three seven five and it and it shaped who I was for the rest of my career and it is what it is. But I've got a question around that thing, Chris. I mean, along that line, do you consider yourself or do you call yourself ever a ranger or do you just refer yourself to, I belong to that unit at some period in time? You just described it as, I was, a, I was part of the regiment, but you never said to yourself or never described yourself as a ranger. Yes. If, you, if someone asked me, were you ever a ranger? I'd say yes. Um, and, and I also don't have a problem with I don't have a problem with answering the rest of that question if they go deeper either. Like it doesn't, it doesn't bother me one bit to say, Hey, there were a set of standards and I did something that was outside of those standards and I was asked to leave. That's the way it works. And that's why that place is so great. And if you had been a first sergeant, maybe it would have gotten swept under the rug and you'd still been there. (laughs) Or or, or a battalion sergeant major. (laughs) Oops. People are going to go back now and go, who was the regimental sergeant major? It's it's interesting. So I I see people in, I see a lot of people from like the Mogadishu era that it doesn't matter if they were a private Mogadishu and then got kicked out of that unit for whatever else. Like, they got it plastered all over their Facebook page. They got it plastered all over everything. And that's cool. I, you know, they should. I think you're kind of referring to some of the stuff that's popped up more recently, which was the story about the politician who called out the guy, yeah. you know, or the ranger that the called ranger out the politician, politician, you know, yeah. saying you're not a real ranger. And I think the Ranger Regimental Association uh, director made a statement about that just to clarify the position of the Ranger Regiment Association. And it was, you know, anybody that had been at Ranger school 
or had served in a ranger unit, you know, we're all the same and everything else and, you know, whatever. I don't, I don't, it doesn't matter to me. I'm not there now. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I don't care. Call it whatever you want. But it's so interesting how people do cling on to that though, you know, about what is a ranger. There was a, a year ago, we had uh, a lot of the co-hosts and stuff for the podcast that came in. Of course, um, a few of them have never served in the, the army. They served in other branches and it was like 1130 at night and somebody brought up the question, well, what is a ranger? And it was like, oh God, that's going to take like the next three hours <laughs> yeah. to first explain the differences and then, you know, a ranger school versus regiment and so on and so forth. It's still a, a topic today that's controversial. Sure. And if you went to ranger school, you're not supposed to call yourself a ranger. As a matter of fact, guys in ranger regiment today want to definitely differentiate those two parties to say, no, one is ranger school, while this is ranger regiment. Yeah. <clears throat> one of the things that the unit does well is that it very clearly defines and lets everybody know kind of their status in the building. So if you're an operational dude, you're an operational dude. That's everybody else in that building is there to support whatever you need. And it doesn't mean they're less. That's the difference. People think, um, well, because I was a support guy or because I was a direct support person or whatever, that you're somehow less than. No, it doesn't. It just your job is to do your support role so that the person that's, you know, going in the door doesn't have to think about all the things that they shouldn't have to think about administratively or, uh, you know, maybe you need something made out of steel or whatever it might be, but like anything, it just, it just happens. And so the unit does a really good job of like, there aren't people posting a bunch of stuff claiming to be things, um, that came from that building, except I've seen a couple and I'm, I wouldn't call anybody out. Um, but there are some people that kind of, use the term operator loosely that didn't serve there in that role, but still continue to use that term and blur the line. Mm. And uh, it's very much to me, it's as hot a topic as the whole Ranger qualified versus Ranger unit versus, you know? Yeah. But again, I'm not there now, so it doesn't really matter. Well, I've, I've known or heard of individuals and, and, but I've also heard people that specifically will if I say something like, oh, you were in, you know, um, S first SFOD, they're very like, oh, no, no, I was not an operator. I was a breacher or I was, you know, so they clearly try to define themselves as like, you know, and I don't want to get gone down. Yeah. We're not going to go down that path or anything. You know, I'm not yeah. going to get sucked in. Well, you'll find dudes that are like, you know, I was a brag. They'll start with that. <laughs> and then they, they kind of lead you to believe, oh, yeah, what'd you do there? Oh, you know, you know, worked out uh, behind the fence. Oh, cool. You know. And it just kind of goes down this path. But yeah, I, I think that they do a much better job than like the Ranger Regiment in, in terms of, um, you know, kind of at least clarifying status so that yeah. when people leave, they know not to even claim things that they shouldn't be claiming. I, I would agree. I've seen individuals, um, you know, who, well, I've seen more operators actually, or heard more operators actually make that kind of statement about the importance of everybody having a role, yep. including the conventional forces. You know, hey, listen, don't don't put yourself down. You had a role just like I did, you yep. know, type of thing. Um, but it's interesting that I don't always see it, you know, you're held to a different esteem, you know, at a, a different level and stuff. It's all, okay, you know, 
John, it's very similar. You know, you were describing like with an F-16 pilot within the Air Force. You guys are like the god, and then but you have all the supporting element that's around you. We, so uh, one, I wouldn't say the god, but you know the uh, <laughs> you know we said it's like 750 people standing behind one F-16, right, to get that pilot in the jet to go do it. But a big piece of it too is you know I was a seed guy, so suppression of any air defenses. That was our big thing. Go kick the door down, get everyone to look at us. So whoever needs to get into wherever they're going can get in unharassed or survive and get out, and then we close the door and leave. Right, your support asset, and that's a weird, you know, mindset to have. But you have to put yourself in that because that that's your job. If you don't do your job, then person X, Y, or Z can't do their job, and it, it gets long. I mean, it's it's tough, right? I mean, flying F-16s, it's it's a fun thing to do, a lot of work, but you can't do your job unless the guy puts the fuel in the jet or security forces is guarding the jet so it's a team effort everyone everyone is a critical piece and if someone doesn't do their job someone else has to pick up that slack and it might not be able to be picked up because it might be a single point of failure yeah yeah. without all of the support package at the unit to make stuff happen you know like you have this whole you know three foot long my hands are apart right (laughs) and and the assault portion is like a millimeter on a yardstick, you know, and it's everybody else that does everything to make, you know, that happen. And so I always say the same thing, you know, I have nothing but love and respect for the people, the support people that make stuff happen. And because without them, none of the other stuff happens. And then we were also talking about, you know, kind of an NFL analogy where, you know, you don't think about it because you watch TV and you see the stars and they focus on the, you know, the players and the team and things like that. But, you know, from down to the guy that sods the stadium, you know, it's everybody, it's the concessions people, it's the people that are, you know, security in the parking lot, everybody that's a part of that organization um, that makes it happen, not just the football players, but they get all the credit, they get all the glory. And I think people look at Delta Force people and they think, oh, there's so much better and better is just totally not the word it's different that's it yeah you know i didn't do anything better than anybody else and what i did is no better than what anybody else did you know it's all the way you serve and it's one of the reasons i have a hard time with people that claim stuff that you know i don't i don't see a lot of like stolen blatant stolen valor stuff i see people that just blur lines you know And they're like, why do you blur the lines? Just own what you did, man. Be the best doorbell, you know, (laughs) a doorman, you know, ever in New York City. Like, that's your job. Just do it and uh, own it. But it's so, it's so weird too. Like that, on that point in particular, I've personally been close to a couple of cases of blurred lines, as you put it, Brad, really well. And in, in both of the cases that I'm thinking of, the guys were really, really good at what they did. They were they were really good at teaching people how to shoot, but they used blurring lines to kind of, I guess, reinforce what they were selling, and they didn't need to. Like the quality of their work and, and the effort that they put into it and the level of training that they provided was enough. They didn't need to do that. So it's such a strange thing. Um, and I definitely agree. <laughs> like. I say this all the time and you'll agree with me. Like we were all just regular dudes. We were regular dudes that the, the organization invested a lot of time, energy and money into 
and supported to a degree that no other unit in the army got supported and it contributed to how successful we were. Yeah. There was a, an interesting time speaking of blurring lines, uh, during the invasion and, uh, Chris, Chris was there for this, but we were, we were doing some stuff that was very conventional and, uh, we had to, and we were there kind of before anybody else knew that it was going on. And we had some support people that we brought with us and these support people were special forces qualified, ranger qualified, uh, airborne qualified, all of that stuff. Like they had served in special forces units and everything else. And they wanted to go be a part of these things that we were doing. And I remember looking at the dude and just said, you know, Hey, that's not what you're here for. You know, we, we brought you along on this thing as kind of a Benny because we think you're a good dude. And we know that you're trained enough that you're not going to do uh, something that's going to jeopardize any of us. But, you know, if you want to do that, just go walk 40 miles. You know, that's all it takes. And uh, a couple of those guys went on to do that. But it was, uh, it was a blurred lines moment in combat. And you, For sure. and you recently saw, or at least, uh, I guess, not that long ago, a Facebook group that kind of got under your skin. You know, there was a, a support person that started this, uh, I'm not going to name the group, uh, but he, yeah. he started a, a Facebook group and there was a criteria for being invited. And one of the criteria was that you received a thanks plaque, which is something that, you know, when you leave there after a certain amount of time, whatever, you get this thing. And if you've been fired, or don't. yeah, if you're fired or leave there with some sort of issue, you know, whatever it might be, you don't get this plaque. And, um, anyway, it, uh, it bothered me to the point because some of the people that I could see with, that were invited into the Facebook group, um, had not received that plaque and I felt like they absolutely should be there. And I was wondering if somebody was going to bring it up and I couldn't, I literally for three, I don't know, two, three nights could not sleep. I was so furious because one of the people and I'm not here to give all of his particular details, but he was uh, wounded in combat and uh, got put because of you know his significant injuries, got put onto a recipe of fentanyl for the better part of two years and made a mistake and got sent you know either out of the military or out of the unit, but he was gone. And I felt like it was such a complete... Um, leadership failure you know here is this guy that was a absolute uh you know one of the greatest people i've served with and you know to see him kind of go down this road of getting fired and the shame that he felt from that um he ended up you know being a heroin addict for the better part of 10 years living out of his vehicle and you know that's something that absolutely was avoidable but to say that he couldn't be a part of this group because of, you know, him leaving under unfavorable circumstances was a mistake. And uh, so I wrote a big, long spiel, and everybody started to backpedal after that. But I, I left the group immediately after that because it doesn't matter. And the only other thing that I've seen similar, um, I had a buddy 
that I went to OTC with a uh, selection in OTC named Tom Greer. And uh, Tom wrote, you know, under the pen name Dalton Fury, wrote Killing Bin Laden and, and some other books. And uh, I was very close to Tom. And Tom, because of writing the book, got, you know, PNG'd from the unit. And we had a teammate in OTC that uh, ended up losing his leg below the knee uh, because he fell and, uh, and shattered b- both of his ankles, but significantly enough that they ended up having to amputate one after about five years. And that dude also left without, he got the thanks plaque, but he didn't get uh, unit colors. And unit colors are kind of like this coveted thing that they don't give to everybody. They only give to people that, you know, whatever, whatever their criteria is. And Tom, because this other guy hadn't received him, took his colors, he took them out of the frame, he crossed out his name, penciled in this guy's name, framed it back up, and sent it to him and said, now you got colors because, you know, you deserve these more than I do. You did way more and, you know, sacrificed way more than me. Just cool story. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's kind of a shame, but I think it also starts to highlight just how, you know, maybe again, leadership is... um or whomever is setting criteria that may not need to be there, you know, in terms of what is a ranger, what is a, an operator, what is a guy that was served with the unit, whatever the case may be. And I don't know why we do these labels or we, we feel we got to set this criteria. Well, so Chris brought up a point, this is probably 10 or 15 minutes ago. And it was to, to paraphrase was that you don't really care, right? What people think. Um, if, if you go through the training and you serve, and in my mind, I just want to be the good dude that guys and gals can count on, right? That if they make the call, they know that I'm going to be dependable, reliable, and then I'm going to have some confidence, what little it is out there, right? To go out there and do whatever job they need. And so it's interesting. It, it is labels, right? There are some things that are black and white. You have to get past this line and now you're X, right? If you don't do it, then you don't get the tab or you don't get the, you know, whatever is epaulet or whatever it might be for the program you're going through. Kilt. Yeah. <laughs> Kilt, you know, uh, but it, it, and also it changes too, right? The culture, I think in any organization shifts over time, especially when you inject 20 years of combat operations and then 20 years of peacetime or whatever it might be. So I, I don't know. It's interesting. I, I find it fascinating to watch people when they fall into the syndrome not being a psychologist, but where they have to prove themselves or blur the lines to go out there and, Hey, look at my street cred when they don't have street cred or they have it and they don't need to say anything, but they have, they just, they have it. They have to open their mouth and do something. I don't know. I went to, uh, well, John, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I think, I think times are changing to an extent. Um, what, what happened to, to Brad's point to, to Tom Greer, uh, might not, he might not necessarily have been treated the same today as he was in the beginning. Um, I think the other point to make is uh, looking back, I think where you find comfort is who do I really care about? Like I I, honestly, I care about the Brad Thomas's. If, If Brad, if Brad loves me and respects me for my time alongside him, what more can I ask for? Like, why do I care what people that didn't serve next to me think? Um, I think that's a big milestone in getting over that stuff, regardless of, 
I don't know what's perpetuated by organizations or isn't. Um, I think, I think the good thing about nowadays is there's a lot of people that are unafraid now and that are pulling together. I think there's a lot of us outside and on moving on to the next life and the next career that, that love each other and support one another. Like I, I, I can tell you, like I'm a, I'm a Brad Thomas fan. I always have been. And I love everything that Brad's doing with silence of the light. Like, and that's all I care about is Brad right now. We have great memories, but I don't think about that. I think about what's Brad doing today. What's Brad doing next week? Like, I'm not looking back at that stuff. That's just a part of our journey and who we are. It's not the thing that defines us. So. Yeah. It's like, I used to be in kindergarten, you know? <laughs> oh, and, and yeah, I was in 12th grade and, all the other things too, but you but know, how many people still live in the high school moment? <laughs> Uncle Rico. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not a. I'm not a. I'm not a fan of that. You know, it's it's uh, not to get into the whole veteran component and you know dudes that are struggling and things like that. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about it. But you know, one of the things um, that I see is some of the guys that feel ashamed, you know, they feel ashamed to come because of whatever circumstances, you know, they left under, um, they're ashamed to come back to the group and they let that. And, and what I tell every one of them, uh, to include the, the same thing that I told the guy that, that was on heroin after, you know, getting fired. Um, like we all have our own stuff. And we don't remember all the circumstances of what everybody, you know, nobody remembers that stuff. Nobody really cares. It was probably a hot topic, you know, back in 2005, but it's not now. And, you know, because we're all dealing with our own stuff, um, you know, don't, don't use that as a, a reason not to come around because too many people love you, too many people respect you, too many people think the world of you, you know, for you not to be here. So... You know, that's, that's what led me down this conversation of like, why is it okay for the Ranger guy? Why is it okay for the guy that served 18 months in the Ranger regiment to show up at Ranger rendezvous and be a part of the crew, but other places it's not, or, you know, what is that line? What, what is the crossing? You know, what line do we have to cross before now we're a member of the tribe forever? You know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it is. I don't either. Yeah, I don't think there's any answer, but it does go back to the point of, again, Chris, like he only cares about Brad. You know, it's the people in those relationships you form. That's what you cherish. That's what I cherish. Like I could care less about a plaque on the wall. Yeah, for yeah. sure. I, I, I look oh. at it like um, I think about it in terms of uh, it's not even necessarily who I care about um, because I, I don't feel like that love ever really changes, even when people wrong us and, things like that later on. Um, kind of forgot where I was going with this, but yeah. Well, I, yeah, I was going to say, I, treat others the way that you want to be treated. Like that's a rule of thumb in life, right? Um, you know, I was one of those guys that felt like I was an outsider because I left not of my own terms. And it, it took me a long time to get over that, frankly. But like just just a couple weekends ago, I was at a, a charity event and I ran into some guys that, that Brad and I served with that, that I didn't work alongside. We were in different places within the organization and 
they they may have heard good things. They may have heard bad things. I always tell the joke: if you ask an operator about another operator, what his opinion is, you know, one of them will tell you, "I I wouldn't piss on him if he was on fire," and the other will tell you, "He's the greatest dude I ever met." Like you're gonna get that. And so when you run into a guy, you don't know what his opinion of you is. But if you're just good to them, honestly, nobody gives a shit later on, like Brad said. And what you'll find is they'll open up and you'll have a conversation in 15 minutes and they'll go, man, I never knew that. And before you know it, you're, you're, you're both on the same page. Like you're, you're this, I don't know, this brotherhood of folks that have shared experiences and you moved on to the next chapter in life and you get that that's just, that's just what we did. And of course we should all stick together and support one another because there's so few of us out there. So yeah, I mean, they're treat others the way you expect to be treated. The thing that, the thing that I lost track of was this, and that is nobody's going to fix the veteran problem except for veterans. Like no yeah. one's, no one's coming in and fixing this. Uh, none of us are victims. So, you know, acting like a victim just isn't even that, that shouldn't even be acceptable, but no one's going to fix, fix it except for, you know, us it's, and, it's you know, ex- extending the olive branch to dudes that we know that are struggling. And there's some, you know, some people you can't reach, some people you try and help and you can only do so much, but, um, you know, point people in the right direction, but no one's fixing it. No one's going to come in and wave the magic wand and now everybody's better. Yeah. You know? Unfortunately, I just don't know that it'll ever get fixed. You know, it's just one of those things. It's sort of like society. We do the exact same thing, you know, within just normal every day. It's, it is sad if nothing else, you know, because like you said, people have to to feel like they did something outside of what they did to feel good about themselves or, you know, or people have to call one another out. We're big about, you know, eating our own. Uh, we talk about that a lot on this show because I don't know, I just see a lot of veterans just come out and if they get an opportunity or if they see success in somebody, the first thing they do is go after them. Yeah. They try to find ways to bring them down. Yeah. You see that with the books and yes. you know, the movie stuff and things like that. And yeah. I, I feel like a lot of that stuff was really those guys are struggling and they're just trying to get their story out because they feel like it's the only way for them to be heard. Some way it could be cathartic you know? too for them, you sure. know, in some ways. Yeah. Uh, definitely a helpful thing. Yeah. I've, I've never understood really that aspect of it too. And I've heard people, you know, as like Chris mentioned, you can talk to anybody and you'll talk to one person and they'll say one thing and you'll talk to somebody else and they'll say something completely different and depending on the day of the week, you know, who knows it might be different, you know, with the same person day to day, but, uh, yeah, it is what it is. So what was it that made you leave regiment then and go to the unit? I knew that you walked in the door and you said you wanted to go Delta force, but what, what was the trigger? What was the moment? Well, it, um, you know, again, it was like, it's, it was definitely my goal in joining the army. Um, you know, it's just what I wanted to do based off of, really no real information until, um, you know, I started working with dudes. I went to ranger school with Norm Hooden, um, who is the, one of the most famous guys from Black Hawk Down, the movie, Mm -hmm. uh, his character. I went to ranger school with him and one other guy and from the unit. And that, that kind of opened my eyes because I could tell that they were just a different breed of cat. And then working with them in Mogadishu was kind of the second part and that solidified it. So I knew what I, what I wanted to do. I was actually supposed to, in October of 93, I was supposed to have gone to selection for, um, the Ranger recon detachment. 
I told my chain of command, I'm going to go to selection. Um, I want to do this other, you know, more specialized thing. I, I think my whole career, and this sounds really bad because I'm summarizing 20 years in, uh, in one statement, but I think everything was kind of a letdown, you know? I had visions of what I thought it was going to be and what it actually turned out to be were two different things. And, you know, so I had, I, I had read these Vietnam books about Rangers in Vietnam and CIA in Vietnam and stuff like that. And, and I very much thought, okay, I'm going to get harassed. I'm going to get hazed. And, you know, until they find out, like, I'm not going to quit and I'm going to, you know, do all the right stuff and I'm not a dummy. Um, I kind of thought it was going to be more like, Hey, you're a part of the team. Now we'd be sneaking through the woods, blowing up bridges and, you know, things like that. That's, yeah. that's really what I thought it was going to be. And it, it was a lot different than that. And there was some really cool stuff that I did. Um, but I, I would always come back to the like, yeah, but we could be this much better. You know, we could be doing these types of things and, you know, et cetera. Um, so that led me to the recon detachment and I love my time there. I absolutely love my time there. It was the first place where now not everybody is sergeant, you know, we're, we're all NCOs and it's first name basis. And the mission was a little bit different and we got some specialized training like military free fall and some dudes went to scuba and, you know, they had stuff like that. And we did a lot of waterborne training and, uh, you know, really cool, really cool kind of specialized mission. And, but to me, that was just kind of a stepping stone to the next thing, which was the unit. So when I got to the unit, um, very much the same thing that happened in the Rangers happened. It was, yeah, I love this. I love some of the things that I do, but once you're there and, and probably a little different nowadays with combat, but pre-war, um, you know, I did almost three years in the unit pre-war and it was a completely different thing. It was just kind of like a cyclical training thing where, you know, okay, now we're going to do, do this and now we're going to do that. And it's this time of year again. So we're going to do these things and it just got repetitive. So when I got there, you know, everybody's the same way. It's like, I work at Disneyland and I can go on all the rides and this is the best place ever. And, and then after a couple of years, you're like, all right, you know, it's Disneyland. It's cool. And I can go on the rides, but you know, it's kind of getting old. And, and so after about five years, I was, I was at the point where I'm like, all right, I, I've been in the army long enough that it would be stupid for me to get out before 20. So I'm going to ride this out, but you know, kind of hit that unfulfilled point again. And that also caused me to learn something about myself, which is I really like new challenges and I like doing something new. And what I'm about today is what I'm about today, not about what I did yesterday or what I did back in 93 in Mogadishu or anything else. That's all a part of who I am now, but I just need to constantly challenge myself. And, um, you know, when I got to the unit, and Chris can talk about this a little bit too. You'll see dudes that are like, he's been here for 16 years. And like, wow, that's insane. And then you start to realize like, what is it with him that he can't challenge himself further? Why is he okay with status quo? You know, and it sounds like I'm talking shit about anybody that served there. You know, I, I was there 12 years, right? But um, it sounds like I'm speaking ill of those people. I'm not. I'm just, I recognized in me, I'm not happy doing something for 10 years. Yeah. I'm not happy doing something for 
too much longer than, you know, four or five years. And I've got to find, I've got to find another challenge. I've got to find something to do that's going to, you know, make me grow as a person. It's typically the benefit of being in the military. We can reinvent ourselves in different ways. I mean, you can go to a scuba unit or you can go to, you know, sniper school and go, go to the sniper route. You can do dog handler, but you're still kind of doing the same thing. But you get, like you said, you get something a little bit, a little bit of an extra flavor added on, Yeah, you, you know. I'm laughing because it was. It's kind of, go ahead. I I was going to say it's kind of it's kind of an interesting thought. I never thought about it like that. But Brad, I don't remember if it was you or or have, um, but I've said this before on a podcast. Actually, was one of the two of you said to me early on in my career in the unit. You said, um, "Enjoy it while you can, because one day you're going to wake up and it's just going to be a job." And it was an interesting statement at the time that I didn't get because I was, I was the kid in the candy store. I was so excited at that point. Like, I can't believe I'm doing this. This is amazing. And then, you know, you move along and eventually you wake up and and it is, it's just what you do. Um, and that reality hits you. But I guess, interestingly, you said that there's nowhere else to go. Like when you, when you're in the army, like, 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 I mean, I, I personally, like, you know, I remember in 06, I talked to a guy that was a, a 160th pilot and I thought little birds were the coolest thing ever. And I loved that they dropped us on rooftops and all that stuff. And I thought it was amazing. And I thought that maybe that's next, maybe I'll, I'll go be a pilot. And a guy that I, that I know and have known for a bunch of years and respected said, don't do it. And I said, <laughs> what? And he goes, don't do it. He goes, you literally have to start back at square one and you'll hate life and it'd be miserable. Just finish your time. And and retire and move on to whatever's next for you. And it was really sound advice. Um, but I don't think everybody's wired that way and it's nothing against it. I think, um, there's guys like, like you and, and, and that I looked up to that went, it, this isn't all of who I am. I'm, I, I can do other things. I can reinvent myself as many times as I want. Um, but I'm going to, I'm going to move on. So at some point it gets taken away from you. And that's one of the things that when I talk to uh, younger dudes and, and guys that are there now, I tell them the same thing. And that is like, don't define yourself as this, you know, this can be a huge part of it. It's gotta be, you know, for you to risk what you're risking and take the chances that you're taking and, and defending all of that. But you're also generally speaking, a husband, a father, you yeah. know, all these other things. And, you need to remember that stuff too, because at some point you're not going to be able to play cowboy anymore. You're going to have to grow up and do something different. And you know, what are you then if, if you're not this? And, uh, I think that's one of the things that, because I never fully identified, you know, I, I saw some amazing commandos air, air quotes, commandos guys that were absolutely like run into fire, uh, you know, Congressional Medal of Honor level heroic stuff. And a lot of those cats like struggled in every other aspect of their life, you know? So just because you can be an amazing commando doesn't mean that you're an amazing human being. And great point. Yeah. So you need to be well-rounded and, you know, that also I feel like made the transition for me, it made the transition a lot easier because yes, I'm losing my identity. I'm losing the thing that I've sacrificed to be for 12 years. 
And then that was after eight years, you know, 20 years of kind of, this is the person that I am and who am I now? And fortunately, because I had other identities, it wasn't too hard to find, you know, that thing to fill the purpose void. So I know when that clarity probably came, it was probably about three and a half, four years in the unit. And then all of a sudden this young looking young guy stud with locks that just flowed and everything come rolling into the unit. And his name was Chris Van Sam. <laughs> I don't think you thought that. <laughs> Why don't you give your real opinion? <laughs> <laughs> oh man what was that like when he came in you know uh, young dude or was he just your typical young dude i got i got i gotta know it's interesting because um we had this conversation on our team and there were three of us that were on the team together before chris got there for i guess the better part of like maybe two and a half years or so so we had already you know kind of been around for a while um my feeling with getting new guys on the team or having a new guy on the team was always that I'll take the 80% performer to the guy that's a hundred percent fit. And so the, the person that fits better personality wise is, is the guy that I would rather have than the star, you know, OTC graduate or whatever. Um, because I knew he's definitely got the skills um, he may not be the top of his class, but not everybody can be the top of the class and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But mm -hmm. so we had gotten a guy prior to Chris and he just didn't fit. It didn't mean that he wasn't the right guy. And he served a long time there and did some amazing stuff. Um, but when his time came, it was like, oh, hey, you're going to go to the sniper troop and, and that'll give us an opening on our team and then we can get somebody else in and. <laughs> Um, you know, that's kind of what happened. So Chris was the, the first guy to come and kind of fill that hole. And within, uh, I don't know, hours, you know, days, he was, he was like a part of the team. And it was because his personality just jived with mine and the two other guys. And we were, we were tight knit. Um, there were, there were people that had a problem with that. And I remember talking with Chris about that early on is he was a naturally good climber. We were a climbing team and he was naturally good at that. And people hated it. That why is brand new guy, you know, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. And, and that caused a lot of stuff. Um, probably not any big drama. Um, uh, he could probably talk better about that, but he fit in right away. And maybe some of his peers from OTC weren't adjusting as well um, on their teams. I don't know. Well, you guys were selecting people based more on behavior, culture of your organization and stuff, which makes sense because if you really want to build, uh, build a team in a solid unit, it's really about that. It's about, especially in the type of work that you guys were doing, uh, more importantly, because if you didn't have that kind of cohesion, collaboration, mesh and everything else, bad things can happen. But even in the private sector, it's so important, no matter what you do in life, in, in choosing the right team players. For sure. Yeah. I, I'm a thousand percent on board with that. But Chris, what are your, what are your impressions of arriving, and, being the new guy? And seeing this guy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, was, I was terrified, if I'm honest. Um, I 
I've said for years, I was fortunate in that I joined you guys when you were currently on a deployment in Afghanistan. Um, I think that kind of forced the issue of either A, I was going to work or B, I wasn't, but you knew that tomorrow I was going to be on your right or your left. Um, I will say that personality has a lot to do with it. Um, you guys were a very tight knit group. It showed as a team. Uh, I think you more than most, I mean, I, I got a tough time from a couple of guys, but I think you kind of curbed a lot of that because you were always your own guy and you kind of took me under your wing. Um, and I always appreciated that. Uh, and it, it changed the way I viewed people coming to the team later on in that, well, like, why should I be that, that guy? Why shouldn't I be the guy that takes them under, under my wing and says, Hey man, this is how it goes. Like I got your back here on this team now. Um, so I, I learned a lot of lessons early from just the way that you guys treated me that I carried into the rest of my career and frankly, the rest of my life. Um, so I, yeah, for me, it was, it was amazing. Um, we did fit personality wise early on. Uh, I think I was, a, I was an against the grain guy. I was super young, so I kind of needed a big brother. Um, but Brad, you, and, and for the guys, you know, Brad was always the guy that, and I think I've heard you say it before, Brad, like, it, like the army wasn't going to change you. And that's exactly how I felt. And when I got to the unit, it was the first time I felt like I could be me. And then that, other teams or other people in your squadron not liking that you were the new guy that seemingly got along with your teammates right away. That was hard. Um, but you guys always made me feel like, like, screw that. It doesn't matter, man. Like we got a job to do and we're going to do it. So, uh, yeah, for me, that was, that was a big part of my upbringing early and shaped the way that I viewed new guys coming to the team later on. But you can't, you can't fake that stuff. Right. So, you know, you showed up and you performed and that's, you know, number one, right. The personality piece, um, you know, definitely helped. Uh, I think that kind of integrate faster, but you know, you can't be a dud and show up and just because you're a cool dude, you know, we're all jiving and high five and in the tent, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I mean, and it progressing forward, like it, it went, it went fast. It went well early. And then, but even moving forward, I think about post Afghanistan and then the, the invasion of Iraq, like we were the team that had music on ICS driving through the night during the invasion. And I've, to, I, I've told very few people that, but like you and I drove every night something and we rotated between the Gower and the ATV. The fact that I had, you know, black Sabbath in the background <laughs> on my headset every night. Like there weren't many teams that did that. We were always a little different and that stuff made it special. And years later, when you look back on it, you're like, wow, we were a little different than the rest of them. It was probably like right out of apocalypse now, you know, with the whole helicopters and the speakers and everything. You know, yeah. and it was in, uh, it was in the headsets. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Yeah, so we, we figured out a way to rig uh, an MP3 player into the ICS and hit play on it. And we'd listen to tunes. I, I told crazy, um, surreal moment in life. I told Ozzy that story. No. Yeah. Yeah. And that was like that Ozzy, like black Sabbath and Ozzy was like the biggest portion of that playlist. If I remember correctly. Yeah. It just, it depended on, you know, 
what what day probably you know well brad so he brad was you were honestly pretty quiet about a your musical talent and b your background in music but i do remember that you were the guy that knew everything music wise you always knew who, who the band was what the song was like if there was a question it was ask brad because you always knew and i did obviously i didn't put it together until years later but trivia yeah it wasn't until um we had a a guy in our troop named george and george had a travel guitar that he would bring on deployments and i would go over and i was generally up earlier than everybody else i don't know why but um i i would get up super early and then go fiddle around on george's guitar while everybody was sleeping i was gonna ask you so no one ever knew that side of you of having that talent especially the number of years that you played and everything prior to coming on and you know uh, I think they did and they didn't. And it's kind of like where I am now, right? Where I don't, I didn't sit there and talk about all the crap that I did pre-military. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was kind of like, who are you now? And, and that also wasn't a huge part of who I was then, you know, mm-hmm. because I had this other thing taken up 90% of my time. So, well, we, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say, I'll, I'll say we, we knew, we knew about your background, but Brad, frankly, you refer to it like you refer to your military career now. It was just, it was something you did along the way. It wasn't like you put a lot of emphasis into it. So we knew it was there, but you never really let on a, what a huge part of your life it was. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, aside from just listening and being a fan, then I still played, um, definitely not the way I did. And I think about 2005, I actually started, you know, kind of having more time to be able to do that. And that's when, okay, let me start going out and collecting more amps and guitars and Was stuff it more like that. just a hobby at that point, or were you thinking more about, all right, I'm going to get into this when I transition, when this, th- this thing's done? Well, it was weird because I had, I had a ton of stuff, like equipment-wise, before the Army. And then when everything kind of ran its course, I sold all that stuff. I actually joined the Army, and my parents sold it all. And I told them, <sighs> just sell it all. And yeah. some of that stuff is, like almost priceless now i I had a 70 (laughs) you'll appreciate this i had a i think it was a 76 telecaster you know with the the case and everything and i think i recently looked up the model and everything and it was around 10 grand yeah yeah yeah. and i gave it away for 150 bucks with the case yeah i sold a bunch of stuff to friends and then my parents sold a bunch of stuff and i just told them to sell it all off so i kind of like i was disheartened you know it actually just kind of broke my heart and so then i joined the army and like put that behind me i'm doing something else now and about a year and a half not even that long maybe uh six months into the rangers so maybe a year total in time in service i was down in i think it was panama city beach um at like club la vila or spinnaker and they had this cover band Everybody who's ever been on Spring yeah. Break knows what you're talking <laughs> yeah, about. Yeah, MTV Spring Break. Um, they had this live band that was cranking, and uh, all of a sudden, I'm I'm like wasted, and uh, I hear the band calling, "Hey, we're looking for Brad. Brad, come to the stage. What? Where's Brad?" And I'm like, "Oh no!" So I go up to the stage, and they go, "Hey, man, we heard it's your birthday, and you just wanted to, you know, come up here and play a tune with us." So what do you want to play? And so we could do this little huddle and I, I played a tune with these guys. And at the end, everybody was like shaking my hand, people were like, <laughs> like got carried off the stage. Almost, you know, it was like one of those kind of moments. 
And I, I don't think that any of those guys, you know, they, they knew because I was fresh in and uh, had just kind of come from that life. But anyway, that was kind of, okay, I need to get some stuff back. I yeah. need to get a guitar. I need to get, you know, a couple of amps and stuff like that. And I had some stuff in the barracks and that turned into a whole thing and uh, started to kind of dabble with it with another guy, Kenny Thomas, who is uh, from Black Hawk Down. He was my roommate in the Rangers for a while. And he went on to a career in country music, and I think he's still doing country music stuff. But he and I would do some acoustic stuff uh, downtown Columbus at the Loft when that opened, and so kind of messed with it. And then got to the unit, and you know had a child at the same time. So like go through OTC with a brand new baby, and you know basically had no time for anything. So um, you know I did the responsible thing and put my time into the work stuff that I had to put my work into, you know, my time into, and then also family. And so my kids became the priority and my family became the priority when I wasn't at work. Yeah. And then, you know, it wasn't until my kids got a little bit older, they started to become self-sufficient and not changing diapers and things like that. And I could plank while they were doing other stuff or had play dates or whatever. And um, it just kind of grew from there. Were you ever thinking, okay, this might be what I'm going to do? Or what was the point where you decided, all right, at the transitional period, I'm going to get back into music again. This is going to be my my passion and my J-O-B kind of thing. So I, I really just kind of started collecting and did a lot of playing. I, I started a band in Fayetteville that ended up actually doing really well. And uh, we opened for a lot of the national acts that were coming through Fayetteville. So um that was kind of the thing that started the spark again. And I felt like, um, it was music that I hadn't written. Um, that was a big part of it. You know, so I kind of joined with a group of dudes and then like cover stuff or just stuff no, that it they was had original written. stuff. Okay, it was yeah. just, and you get to a point where it's like, here, you've got a set list and we're going to open for cracker or we're going to open for seven, Mary three or, uh, whoever vanilla ice. Um, so, we've got 10 songs and we have like a heavy set or we've got a light set, you know, depending on who we're opening for. So anyway, that, that kind of re-engaged it and then retirement came. And now of course I've got a lot of time for it. Well, not a lot of time, but, um, you know, it just started to grow from there. So. Brad, do you, do you think that, um, in terms of, I don't know, I guess, mental difficulties and transition difficulties do you think that you sort of got a head start because you fell back into music prior to retirement or were you conscious of that and that's why you dived back into music i don't think i was conscious of that um i think i was you know to me like my wife called it the other day she goes, would you put down your toy and come help me? <laughs> and I was like, how dare you call this a toy? <laughs> this, this is a $2,400 toy. Um, it's a, it's like my pacifier, right? So the guitar, I pick it up and it's what I can do where I'm, my brain just doesn't even think, you know, I'm in a total flow zone. Uh, the only other thing that I can do that puts me in that same kind of zone is cook. And if I'm cooking or doing whatever, I'm just kind of not thinking. I'm just thinking about, and I don't follow recipes. I'll just make whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I'm no pro or anything, but um, that's the only other thing that I can do that just kind of puts me in that zone. So 
for me, it was, um, you know, the impetus for the whole band thing came from, uh, and I've told this story a bunch that people are probably tired of hearing it, but for the better part of three years, uh, my wife and I go out every Friday night and it was kind of date night when, when my kids were younger and, uh, as they got older, you know, it just ended up being our night, but we would have a couple cocktails and then we would go have dinner and I would tell her, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm an ocean liner, you know, out on the ocean. And I'm just looking for the searchlight. Like, just tell me what to do. How can I help? What, what can I do that's going to make a difference? And what can I do that's also going to help fulfill, you know, some of this lack of purpose that I feel. And, uh, that's kind of where it started. And, you know, one week we would talk and she'd have me running for president, you know, literally it'd be like, what about do this? And then you could be the town councilman. And then, you know, <laughs> one week it would be that <laughs> the next week it would be something else, you know, it just kind of bounced all around. And one day I'm in, uh, I've got a room in my house, which, you know, kind of the music room, but it's just full of stuff. And she came in and she goes, man, it's a shame. You're not doing anything with this. And I play it all, but she just was very, you know, blunt. And the next day I was driving, uh, into Manhattan to hang out with my buddy, Jason Everman. He flew in from Seattle and, uh, we were going to go see Mastodon at, uh, Hammerstein ballroom in Manhattan. And he knew those guys and we were going to go hang with them and whatever. And as I'm driving there the light bulb, was just, boom, <laughs> it went off the hamsters, the hamsters got on the wheel and they generated enough electricity for the light bulb to go off. And, uh, anyway, I, I knew what I was going to do. So I approached Jason as soon as we got together and we had a couple of drinks and we're getting ready to go to this concert. And I was like, Hey man, I had this idea and I want to start a music thing, whatever that is. I don't want to even define what it is. I want to start this thing and take the proceeds of which and give it to, you know, special operations, charities, or whatever, like we can pick whatever we want it to be. And, uh, you know, do you want to do this? I know you've been out of music for a long time, longer than me. Um, would you be interested? And he was like, hell yeah. So that's, that's really kind of where it started. But where, when did, when did you meet up with, uh, or know Jason from past um, life or you yeah, know, like a before bit, military? Yeah. Or? A little bit of past life. Okay. So he, he served in the Rangers, uh, the same time that I did. We didn't serve together, yeah. but um, ran the same circles kind of thing. Yeah. And then we had uh, a mutual friend and Jason was living between New York and Seattle and kind of bounced back and forth. And so we had a, a mutual friend that was like, you guys really need to hang out. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we hung out the first time and that was it. Lifelong brothers, you know, kind of yeah. thing. So how did the name come about? Silence and Light. Um, let's see it really came from a picture and the picture was, um, something that one of my bandmates Tyson took from, he was in Afghanistan. He was a MARSOC officer mm -hmm. and it was a picture of kind of the Afghan Valley at sunrise. And, you know, pictures can speak a thousand words. And when I looked at the picture, it just, it brought back a lot of memories. It was, there was nothing. It wasn't like a cool photo. You know, there was nothing special about it other than, man, I know what that picture feels like. Mm. Sort of like being back at uh, Fort Benning and 
Zealand yeah, Ranger Regiment. Yeah, yeah, it was just that it, feel. Yeah, it was just it, the feel of it, and you know, we were we were kicking some things around, and it was kind of like, you know, I, I think of deployments and deploying, and I think of like solitude. You know, you're very alone when you're not, you know, doing stuff. Um, it's very boring. You know, there's a lot of just kind of sitting around. And, uh, so there's this loneliness, you know, even though you don't, you don't have the thing that you snuggle with and kiss and, you know, you don't have this thing that's passionate there with you. You don't, uh, have your little kids that you're snuggling with and watching cartoons and things like that. And so, you know, there's, there's somewhat of like a withdrawal, but, but there's this hope, you know, and so it started with the idea of like this solitude and hope, you know, what's the light at the end of the tunnel, you know, that type of thing. And so he told me about a poem that was called uh, Between the Silence and the Light. And so that's where it came from. We read the poem and, and uh, we're talking about it and we we're like, yeah, how about that? And we wanted it to be something not like, you know, bomb dropper, you know, we wanted it to be something, <laughs> you know, not cliche. And also that would make people think, you know, like, what is that? I wonder what that means. And really it's, I don't know, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to, to whomever? But there's, there is hope and there is light at the end of the tunnel always. I like how you, um, it was a photo and a poem, you know, the, so you could take an impression from the photo that if you just left that story right there, you'd be like, all right, man, I got to see that photo so that I could really get my own impression of what that looked like or, you know, maybe what you guys were thinking or seeing at that moment. But then you added to that and said that there was a poem that you guys read. So there was two things that actually triggered that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Really, really cool. Yeah. yeah. Deep. Yeah. And, you know, part of this, I was talking about this the other night. <clears throat> Um, you know, really one of the main reasons that I'm out there doing the thing that I'm doing is to show other guys that they can find this thing too. And it sounds silly. Um, I'm not doing it for me. I'm not doing it for my own personal accolades or anything else. Like I'm a pretty happy person. Um, the Rangers have a motto of, you know, lead the way and lead by example. And that's something that I felt like I can put my combat resume up against anybody's and say, I've been there. I've done that. I've lived a ton of dark stuff. And if I can do this, you can do it too. You just need to find out what it is that you're passionate about and, and go out there and do it. Um, what I can tell people is that, you know, this whole sense of purpose, you know, the thing that you're doing in the military or the thing that you're doing, if you're a surgeon or the thing that you're doing, if you're a trial attorney, all of that stuff is like larger than life. You're fulfilling something that's bigger than yourself. And that's very much what this is for me. It's like, I'm a representative of the community. It's not Brad's band and Brad's a star. Brad's not a star. Brad's representing the community from where I came from. And I take that really seriously, you know? So it's not about me. It's about me showing other dudes. And it's crazy because I'll see now there are probably four or five uh, bands that are out there that are like, hey, we're doing the same thing you guys are doing. You know, thanks and all that kind of stuff. And, I'm, you know, it doesn't have to be music. It could be anything. It could be art. It could be, you know, 
but I'm doing something positive, healthy, creative, uh, and it allows me to kind of get rid of all that negativity and bad stuff and do it in a healthy way where I'm not, you know, trying to find it at the bottom of a bottle and I'm not popping pills to get it and I'm not, you know, doing anything destructive to get there. Do you find like being in the band helps also with that because you have like-minded teammates? It takes you back again to that whole team, you know, and finding people like, you know, you were talking about when Chris joined and it was a tight-knit group and everything. You guys are like-minded on the same path with the same passions, same purpose, and maybe even sharing some of the same dark secrets that you can help each other work it, you know, work it your way through. Yeah, I, we're, we're no doubt it's like squad you know, we're, uh, we approach things very, very much the way we did when we were functioning military members. So we don't have a ton of time together. We do a lot of stuff remotely and then we get together and it's time to get down to, you know, work and like old school studio time. You've got X number of hours. That's it. We've um, got to walk in there and do it. Some of it's that it's, you know, like when we get to the studio, we've got like, we're going to be recording, uh, the majority of June and July um, for album two. So, I mean, there's a little bit of space there, but rehearsing and getting things together, we don't all live in the same state. Do you do that remotely as well? Uh, we don't rehearse remotely. The way it happens is like, I'll cook up stuff and I'll send it. I just recorded it on my iPhone track. Yeah. And I'll, I'll lay it on my iPhone and then send it around. And if it, if it passes the sniff test, Tyson's my first sniff test. (laughs) And if, if it passes that and he's like, yeah, man, that's cool riff. then it kind of goes from there yeah. and like so we've all had a chance to play with it before we get together so that when we get together nobody's like well what are we doing what do we what's the next part what do we it's all kind of there and it either flows and it jives or it doesn't and if it doesn't jive we're on to the next one we don't you know i've got probably 600 and something recordings in my iphone and it just it's about uh, you know, finding the thing that clicks and that we all like and we can all contribute a piece of. So I write the music, but everybody contributes their parts. And uh, it's kind of cool to see from where it started, you know, to, to where, where it grows and what it becomes. Mm-hmm. You know, that's probably the coolest part. And then you have like a producer, um, our guy, multi-Grammy award-winning veteran producer, but uh, what an amazingly talented guy, you know. So he can, he can hear, you know, what we've got. And that's kind of like an 85% solution and then just kind of put the icing on the cake. So, which a lot of people, again, getting back to the background, a lot of people don't realize the difficulty of creating a song, putting the pieces to it, and sometimes building upon that in so many different ways, you know, from different instrument instruments to different components of how you're going to bleed that in, fade it out, all those types of aspects to it. So um, there's a bit of an art here that comes into play for sure. Yeah. I mean, that's when I go into something, it's like, I'll, I'll record my voice on the, on the iPhone and I'll say, okay, so this is going to be a bass intro. This is the bass part, you know, basically like this. And I'm going to come in and do these things. So this is the way it goes, you know, do whatever. And I'm like, okay, this is chorus, you know, but I'll talk through the whole thing and kind of narrate it. Yeah. And it basically follows that, you know, so it follows this, this logical sequence. And then, uh, once everybody adds their stuff, it either works or it doesn't, you know, and I, so Brad, go ahead. Uh, hey, on the band side, man, like how much of, 
I know it's a collective and you guys all come from different backgrounds, but there's a lot of just being a good teammate in there. And, and, you know, do the guys look to you for that leadership or is it, is it a collective where everybody just learns some lessons from their life in the service and they're good teammates and they all contribute to the team goal? Yeah. I mean, that's really kind of what it comes down to It's you know, we don't, there, there aren't a whole lot of like falling on your sword moments. You know, there are some, and, uh, I don't, I don't like the term, like I'm the leader. It's what I would say is it's my baby, you know? So I've definitely got the most sunk into it, you know, financially and, uh, you know, the amount of time that I spend on it, you know, but not everybody can be like, we don't need, uh, we don't need five kernels. Yeah. That's what, you know, that, that's it. Um, primarily what ends up breaking up a lot of bands is because everybody wants that. Everybody wants that lead yeah. role. So when you take a band photo, where are you in the, in the photograph? Maybe in the center, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> Two steps ahead. No, everybody no, else. I, that's a, that's an internal joke guys. I'm saying that because there was a time more than once, Brad is quoted as saying, in a team photo, if you're the person in the middle, everyone thinks you're the leader. <laughs> uh, yeah, we have a bunch of team photos where I'm in the middle, <laughs> in the middle of all of them. It's hilarious because I'm like up front and center, looking all uh, looking all important. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Yeah, no, it's still very much the same way. And then there's natural personality stuff too, where it just you know. I don't know. I, I live this thing 24 yeah. seven and not everybody should live it 24 seven. And it doesn't require that. What, what it does do is, uh, and the things that I've learned is, um, it really is, it's a business, right? So we incorporated so that, you know, we can earn revenue and we can take that revenue and we can contribute it to different charitable organizations. Uh, we can make money off of merchandise and help, you know, fund some of the things that we have to spend money on. Um, there's a lot to that, you know, like an accountant that takes care of all those things. There's uh, just the print, you know, like we have a T-shirt and merchandise and I, I don't want to speak ill of it, but I'm not super happy with it. So how do we fix it? How do we make it look better? You know, like we want this to be as good as it can be, not good enough. And so the first album um, we went into it knowing, you know, like we limped it across the finish line really. And, uh, probably the biggest credit that I got from the producer was, man, you guys did it. Like most people can't do this. They really can't. It's, it's a very small group of people that can actually, you know, put something together, make it all happen, record it, release it and everything else. It's a very small uh, group probably a little bit easier now with pro tools and people can do it in their basement mm -hmm. and electronic music and things like that. But, um, the fact that we did, it was huge. We made our own website. Like, do you think I can make websites? <laughs> no. You know, uh, we figured out how to make t-shirts just to be able to get it, you know, get it off the ground. So album one and going into it, even the vision that I had was like, we just need to do it. We just need to show people that we're a real thing and you know gain some following and have some supporters and people that are out there that like us and and will help out and that was the goal and all along it was album two is where you know things are going to start to change because now we found 
not only have we figured out all the things that we needed to figure out business-wise, but we also kind of found our sound. And it took a long time of, you know, writing songs of like, are we more this kind of band? Or are we more that kind of band? Mm. Are we more this sound? Or are we more that sound? And so when we went in, we recorded the first album, we actually recorded like 12 songs. And what we realized was when we put them all together, some don't fit, even though we like them a lot, they don't fit with the other songs. So like, if you listen to Metallica's first album, every song pretty much sounds the same. And I didn't want to, <laughs> I didn't want to be that. I didn't, I like stuff like, um, Aerosmith where, you know, one song is heavier, one song is a little poppier, one song. I like that diversity, but it's still all got to fit in a box. Right. So you wouldn't describe a band as, well, they're kind of country rap, you know, <laughs> it's like they're either country or they're rap, right. Or they're right. hard rock or they're, you know, easy listening jazz, uh, whatever. Um, so it was very hard to kind of put together a collection of songs that all work, that all had, you know, so we, we recorded 12 songs and then it's like, ah, I don't like the lyrics, like these lyrics for this song to sound, they sound junior high school. Like we're better than that. So I would rather not release the song than put something on there that's going to be half-assed. And so we, we limped eight songs across the finish line. And, you know, now that we found our sound and kind of what it is that we are as a band musically, then it's, it's been a lot easier. So because of COVID, we haven't been able to play shows. We did, uh, we did open for Lenny Kravitz, uh, last November before things kind of went sideways. We had a USO brief USO tour, uh, kind of lined up to go do, I think it was like 10 days, seven countries, you know, stuff like that. We had a handful of like one-off benefit shows that we were going to do a couple in North Carolina and, uh, and work in some other things. And when COVID happened, you know, we took that and and it was interesting because I knew what I was going to do as soon as it happened. It was like, we're just going to keep writing. Like all we need to do now is focus on writing because we can't do anything else. And, you know, I would see on Instagram, like so-and-so is in the studio going to record a new album. You know, like everybody's doing the same thing because they can't be out playing live music. So, um, I basically wrote a new album we got together a bunch of times and we rehearsed it. And then towards the end of that, um, I came in with this new song and the new song, it's exactly the thing that I was just talking about. It's like a unicorn where it doesn't fit with these other songs, but the dudes like this new song so much that I basically wrote, you know, 12 more. Oh my God. <laughs> and so I've written really two albums, one that we're not going to record. And it was just, it kind of, it, it's weird because I wrote it starting in uh, January of 2020. I started writing it then. And so when you're, when you're like putting this stuff out, man, it's a piece of your soul. It's a part of you. And if you were to say, record this thing that you had feelings for a year and a half ago. Like mm. I don't have those feelings for it anymore. That's what I've always found hard about musicians playing songs that are, are that way. I mean, how can you bring that same level of emotion and passion to that song? Yeah. Each time. Yeah. Same so, level. I mean, that's, that's a skill. Yeah. I felt like I was fake. I felt like we were faking it, you know? It's funny that you said unicorn. Um, I had, I had a couple of thoughts. I work, I work with somebody that 
works way outside of their character and is incredible for the generation. And we jokingly call her the unicorn because it's not normal for that generation. Have you ever thought that maybe you're the unicorn in your situation and that, you know, every situation, every circumstance, every event in life needs a catalyst. Like maybe you're just that guy and you're that guy that is that catalyst that isn't afraid to, to step out from it and go, this is me. This is what I want to do. This is what I think we should do. Like, how do you, how do you feel about that? I don't know. I, I, um, I try not to like internalize stuff like that because I feel like then that's when ego shit starts and I, I try and keep it as real as I possibly can. I know that I have a really weird life and I've had a lot of really uh, crazy connections and uh, through people that I know and some of the people that I hang out with and associate with and things like that. And it's, I don't know where it comes from. Um, I think it's just a collecting of good people, you know, so I, I don't know. I, I know what you're saying. Um, I just, I don't ever want to put myself as like, I don't know, the object, right? I would rather no, say, I, I would oh. rather say I, I, I represent this community, you know, I represent whatever. I'm an example of a dude, you know, if you want to know what, uh, you know, a, a former Delta Force guy that did these things or whatever, like, hey, I'm an example of one, whether you like it or not. <laughs> Uh, yeah, definitely don't fit in a box. There are a lot of, there were a lot of cats at the unit that were very creative people, you know, artists. Um, yeah. No, in, incredible folks, guys. I mean, let's face it. It's a community of highly intelligent people that are, can be successful at whatever they do. I didn't, I didn't mean it that, and I didn't mean to put you on the spot. I know you don't look at yourself like that. I think that's what makes you unique to the rest of us is that, we looked up to you because you never thought of yourself like that. Um, it was more that you were your own person and you're still doing that today. And I hope you keep doing that Yeah, because yeah. it gives the, it gives the rest of us something to shoot for. Yeah. And, uh, and, and make fun of <laughs> <laughs> one of, one of the most, um, I used to get nervous like that when, the, when this whole thing first started and I would record something on my iPhone and send it to one of the dudes. I'm just sitting there looking at my phone for the three dots, you know, like, is he going to say he liked it? Yeah. <laughs> because it's, it's, uh, it's like pulling your dick out and putting it on the table and going like, is she impressed? Does she like it? <laughs> you know, it's, it's bearing a part of yourself. It's, yeah. it's, uh, and to do that in front of a multi, I think he's got seven Grammy awards now, but like to that would do be that, the dots I'd be waiting on. That's the one you're right. talking about, right? Yeah. All the, yes. Yeah. yeah. Just, you know, waiting for the reply, like giving me like, it's, it's good. I like it. You know, um, some of that was just kind of not because I was insecure about it. Like I know what I like, but is what I like the same as what, you know, these four other guys like, or I will it know. sell? Yeah, yeah. And that's part of it too. Yeah. Well, rock music doesn't really sell, so. Yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because two years ago, episode 177, when you did um, last time come in studio and we did a podcast, was around the time frame you were about ready to release the first album. And I remember having that conversation, uh, especially at the tail end of the, our, uh, our podcast episode and taping. And you were really excited about it, and I think it launched like, I don't know, 
a month later, two month late, uh, two months later. So here you are, fast forward. I was just listening to all this, and I go, okay, now I'm getting the timing together. It was two years ago. Yeah. yeah. So now you're back in studio two years later, issuing, you know, putting out second album. I already have the third album ready, standing in the door if you ever want to use it, but second album's coming out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no. So what I meant by that is like we scrapped the whole second album. Like we've. You're not even going to share it yeah, at all. So ever. that. No. Nah, I mean, are you going to like maybe take, take some of the lyrics and change them up and, you know. Like, was there any bones there? I don't know. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely so. Okay. But it's, again, it's like going back, it'd be like, well, why don't you go date the girl that you liked in seventh grade? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Like, I don't feel the same way as I felt in seventh grade. And, yeah. Oh, she's totally different now. And, you know, whatever. It's, yeah. it's kind of that thing. So because we had the time and because we had the opportunity to keep doing it, and all of a sudden it was like, wow, we really kind of found our sound and we found it with that whole thing I talked about kind of early on, which is when I go down to Fort Benning, this feeling that I have, and that's, that's really kind of like what I tapped into. And all of a sudden it was like, man, this stuff just started rolling out. Obviously they all felt that exact same thing. Oh yeah. Yeah. We're psyched. Like everybody's psyched about this. There were most of the songs for the first album, literally like we didn't even have lyrics for as we went into the studio, we barely had all the songs complete. And, uh, you know, so this, this is like Excel documented. Oh, I've got four tracks on this song. These are the effects that I'm using on those four tracks. This is the amp that I'm using for this. This is the guitar I'm using. For, like, I know all that stuff. Like we're that kind of far that stuff it. anyway, which pedal you're going to use and the whole bit for each, you know, which guitar we can get geeky and everybody, <laughs> everybody will turn it off. <laughs> That's I, I love this. They'll be yeah. like, where's that episode with uh, Pat McNamara <laughs> <laughs> telling war stories. <laughs> uh, it's really cool though. And I, I'm, you know, again, I commend you for putting all this together, finding your passion and purpose primarily because that's the biggest thing as we talked about here that people struggle with in transition is trying to really find that thing that's going to kind of ground them once again and have them, you know, help them move forward. And in many cases, it's like, you know, in the case of Chris, it was maybe getting reconnected with something he was passionate about at some time frame. And it could be different things for everybody, but the fact that you found it and it was actually something that you had in the past, you just reconnected. Yeah. It's, know? it's interesting because like back then I would, I would have been the idiot that like overdosed and, you know, went down the wrong so road. Went, yeah. 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 It, I didn't have the maturity then. Um, mm. I also didn't have the depth and the soul that I have now. So there are some of those cats. This is what I figured out is like the guys that have that generally speaking are tortured, you know, the Kurt Cobains, the people that are like, you know, the real unicorns, those, those people generally are like tortured or they've got something that's the drive is so incredibly high for some reason, like their parents left them and they were 12 and literally had to make it on their, you know what I mean? Oh, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Those people are driven and they're out to prove something and they have a depth that I didn't have. I had this amazing, easy, <laughs> perfect childhood. You know, it, it was all great. Um, you know, kind of no drama uh, for the most part. And so it was very hard for me to have depth and maybe, you know, our creator, whoever that might be, whatever that might be, or whatever your spirituality or connection looks like, maybe he like had a plan for me. And that was, 
you're going to go do this thing and you're going to learn some of that and then you can bring it back and put it into music. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I can totally uh, see how, you know, well, first off, knowing from the music scene how things definitely changed and how you probably would have evolved if you'd have been totally embedded in that the whole time frame. But I can see how now, though, you're using those experiences and that those depths that you lived but in a different way now to put within the music and the sound that you're creating and the guys that are in that room very much live that same life and can embrace it, understand and mesh together to create a, a band sound. Yeah. You know, which again, everybody is kind of playing on the same sheet of music. You could write sheet music. People can come in and play it that are, studio musicians but it's very different when you have individuals that even if you choose a wrong chord everybody goes that same direction yeah yeah there's a lot of that there's a lot of because we've got <clears throat> kind of what i said before um because we've all got different musical backgrounds like where it starts and where it finishes are two different places and then the finished product is us you know that's a cool thing um you know, if I go back and I play or listen, the last time we were together, I bust out the iPhone and was playing some of the early on stuff and how things changed and, you know, what it is now. And you're like, man, never saw that, you know, like that wasn't my intent when it started, but it's cool to see. So, Brad, do, do, so do you, you're on to album number two. I've always been curious about this and like, do you have a fear of acceptance with the music or are you to a point where you're just, you're because you're collectively as a team, as a group, as a band, you're proud of what you turned out. Like you don't care. Like, how, like how do you feel releasing a new album? Yeah, totally don't care other than I hope that it's something that people connect with. And that's, you know, because anybody could just put something together and be like, I like it, so I don't care. Um, it doesn't hurt my feelings if people are like, oh, this sucks. What I can say, though, is that these tunes are like by far more mature, more thought out, more, uh, more everything. It's just like we took it and went to 11. You know, we took something that I feel like was like a solid six and a half or seven, and we've taken it to a 12, you know. Um, we all are that jazzed about this stuff. And uh, I think it's something, you know, with the publicist getting involved and we've got a label involved now, or at least a couple of labels that want to release. So um, we've, we owe them some demo stuff and then they'll kind of make some decisions. Um, you know, that'll be kind of the next step. But I feel like with that, um, you know, this is going to go a lot further than the first one did. The first one went way beyond our expectations. So my original goal was like, if I can get five, 5,000 people following and, you know, 5,000 downloads, I'll be, you know, totally happy with that. That's, that's solid. And we've done, we've done better than Nirvana's first album, not never mind bleach their first album. Yeah. We've done better within uh, ride the lightning by Metallica. Yeah, it's insane when you look it at the number insane. of the yeah. number of downloads, you know? Yeah. It's crazy. They were like 40,000 downloads, both those albums, maybe 80,000 for Ride the Lightning. And we've done better than that. So um, I feel like there's nowhere to go but up. What's the timing of this? 
Where is the when's the next album so coming out? Record uh, June into July, and I think we're also planning to do some kind of live show uh, in Raleigh. Okay, right around the same time. Um, that'll go to uh, mix and master and all that stuff. Will take a couple weeks, so probably looking at um, end of August, beginning of September. Okay, um, you know, part of that is I referenced it earlier, but like we want to redo our website. We want to have new merchandise, the whole branding, we, you thing know, in. so all of that stuff has to hit at the same time. We've sure. got like videos with promotional music stuff that we want to release and having all of that done. So that's kind of what we're doing now. That's, that's a short, I mean, we're only talking five months. That's a short yeah. window there to get all of that accomplished. Yeah. And the music's kind of like the easiest part at this point. Mm because we know what it's going to be. Yeah. You know, there are, there are a handful of things that we're still, uh, me and Freddie are going back and forth with lyric stuff and things like that, but it's for the most part, it's done. We just need to go lay it down for real. Where can people find it when it does come out? Um, so with the first album, you can get it on, uh, iTunes, Apple music, Spotify, anywhere you get music. It's, it's on, uh, I think Amazon does CDs, so you can get CDs there if you like physical copies. This this go around, we're definitely going to do some vinyl, and that's I don't I think the plan for I love vinyl. Old yeah, I don't I don't think we'll sell a ton of vinyl, but what we're trying to do with it is, you know, if you want to support these charitable organizations and you buy the vinyl, like we're going to take the proceeds and give them to these charitable organizations. And oh, by the way, it's going to be some wicked cool art, you know. So. Um, it'll look cool graph, you know, graphically you can put it up on your wall or you can have it out and it'll be a cool thing. And you know, you're supporting something when you buy it. Um, that's the intent, but also too, I just want to make a record. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> And I'm like, Oh, if I only have to commit so much money to do, you know, 500 copies of something like, sure, I'll do it, you know? Yeah. Um, but anyway, we're going to do some of that. And it just, like I said, timing all that stuff out and making sure we have all of our ducks in a row. If anything delays the music release, it'll be because we're still trying to f finalize all the other stuff. Sometimes I see artists and st or new artists or different genres and stuff on like Spotify. Will it end up on there? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, our uh, first album's on Spotify. Okay. What happens though is, and this is the one part and why we wanted to have a label involved is that comes through distribution. So anybody can upload something to uh, iTunes or Apple Music or things like that. We're verified artists on both platforms, so we can see all of our returns. Um, we can see all of our royalty statements. We can see the demographic, which was surprising to me because I thought, well, you know, I'm not a young dude, um, but our demographic is like 18 to 31 year old males, you yeah, know, yeah. probably a lot of military and law enforcement and I'm first sure. responders and jamming to it while they're going like down and hitting the target. Yeah. Gym people. And it, I can see like how many times it gets shazammed as an example. It's kind of <laughs> cool. You're like, I wonder who's shazamming that song, but what a label does is they have a distribution agreement. So they'll have something where they're going to push you, because they want to get you onto like a curated Spotify or Apple artist playlist. Mm. Like that's their goal because if they can get it onto that, then you're talking like in the millions of downloads. And so it behooves hey. them, you know, hey, uh, honestly, uh, maybe, um, I, I know that you'll agree, but don't you think that <clears throat> honestly successful shit comes from doing it for the right reason? 
A thousand percent, man. We had, we had this conversation about where do we record the first album and how do we record the first album before we, you know, ever got hooked up with Josh. And that was about the time that Josh got involved. And Josh hit me up out of the blue for that exact reason. I was like, hey, man, I saw what you got going on. Uh, I don't ever offer this, um, but I'm happy to be, you know, your producer and get this thing out for you. We're like, hell yeah. So I, I did the quick pick up the phone. Uh, who is this guy? Let me check him out. Google. Oh, it's uh, Justin Bieber's producer, <laughs> Maroon 5 and Celine Dion and you name it. Um, yeah, dude is super talented. Now he's like escalated to, I'll, I'll look at some of the, cause he'll post stuff and I have no idea who these artists are. You know, Hey, so-and-so bad bunny. And I'll be like, who's that? And then, Oh, Oh yeah. Like, uh, only 83 million follower, you know, that <laughs> level of dude. So it's insane. But anyway, uh, yeah, we, we had that conversation and it was, you know, we could do this ourselves. We could, you know, do this on the cheap. You can, you can record an album for basically free if you have the software and the laptop to do it. A lot of people do. But it's like writing a book, right? You can yeah. write a book and self-publish. Yep. Yep, absolutely. But we elected to spend about $35,000 <laughs> because, because we wanted to do it for real and say, hey, we're for real, you know? And even with this one, like nobody's fronting us the money to do this, you know? So if people want to support and help out, uh, our merchandise is the only way for us to even come close to recouping costs, which we aren't even close to recouping any costs on. But it, that's, no. that's kind of the intent behind doing new merchandise and doing some vinyl and things like that is for us to be able Dude, to try that, and recoup something. That's such a great point. Like, I, I, I didn't know anything about any of this. And we both have some friends that have written books in the last few years, and some of them have done published stuff. And some of them have done self-published stuff. But I learned a lot of lessons in asking them questions in it the business, regardless of what you're talking about, print or music or, or online or, or whatever, it, it costs money. And in, in order to be able to do the things that you guys are doing, that Silence and the Light is doing, giving back to charities that you think are important, like that, that's tough. And that there's a lot of work that goes into that. Like, I don't, I don't think people get that. I don't think people get the time and energy that goes into that. And that, that what a huge part of your life that that is um, and how much it must mean to you to dedicate that portion of your life to it. So like, honestly, like tell people, Brad, like, like I, I care about this. That's why I do it, but it's not easy. Oh yeah, for sure. I, I try and talk about that, you know, and, uh, and let people know, <clears throat> I think everybody gets it to some degree, you know, um, we elected, this was kind of interesting because from the beginning, the whole point was we will take, if you buy the album, if you buy a song, we will take 100% of the profits that we get from that. So if we sell a song on iTunes for 99 cents, right? That's what, that's what iTunes lists a song for or an album is generally $9.99. iTunes takes, Apple Music takes 30 cents. And then it has to be uploaded. Um, you can't just 
from your personal email account or your computer upload stuff to iTunes and Apple Music and nope. Spotify and everything it's else. Come from an RSS feed. Right. So it's got to go through an aggregator. Yep. They take about seven cents. So what you're left with is like maybe 61, 62 cents per song. Um, to put your stuff on iTunes where it can be purchased, you have to agree that it also will go on Apple Music where people can just get it for free. So generally speaking, people don't like to pay for music. And they'll and go to Apple Music. Holy crap. They go to Apple Music. They go to Spotify. They go to YouTube. It's on everywhere. So, yeah. um, And they get it for free. And that's okay. We made the collective choice to do it not as a CD, not as something that you know you could only buy. Uh, because we just wanted the music to be out there and like, let everybody enjoy it. Let everybody have it, you know, and the people that know they'll buy it or they'll buy merchandise or they'll buy something, you know, to help us be able to kind of recoup some costs. Um, others have mentioned doing a GoFundMe page and I'm like, I don't want, I don't want for one second to get on and be like, Hey, help us raise $40,000 so we can pay for studio fees yeah, like in Los Angeles. Yeah. yeah. And I don't want to be asking for money because this thing is about giving. It's not about taking. Yeah. But there's a yeah. lot of cost up front that we're talking about here. Yeah. No doubt. Wow. Yeah. That, that passion piece. That's, I mean, that's the thing that's resonated with me the most. Being, you finding a passion and pursuing, cause you've poured everything into this, yeah. you know, and that's something that's very unique that, if you can find that piece, you're fortunate because not everyone can do that. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, you're gonna sacrifice all this time, energy, and resources. The reward, I, I, you know, when I went into this, there are a lot of unintended, you know, kind of consequences that I didn't necessarily know. One of them being more public and just the number of people that I've reached, you know, have reached out to me, uh, but people that have reached out to say, "Man, I listened to this tune." And I was on the treadmill in the gym and I'm a SWAT guy, but man, I had tears rolling down my face and I was like, dude, how fucking rad is that? You know? Yeah. We talk like, about how it only takes one. Yeah. It can you know, totally reset the course. Yeah. So there's been a ton of that. There've been a ton of people that are like, man, you're inspiring. You've inspired me to go do this. I, I'm taking lessons at 43, you know, nice. I want to learn whatever. And it, there's been a ton of that. I, uh, because I run, uh, well, my own personal Instagram, but the band Instagram as well. Um, so I'm the one that mainly sees that, but I'll, t I'll screenshot all that stuff and I'll send it to the other dudes so that they, you know, they get a sense of like, Hey man, we're making a difference. We're, we're out there. And, people and those know are the only, are, those are just know? the ones you hear. You don't, I mean, cause yeah. not everybody's going to reach out cause they're like, ah, you know, he's busy. He's got whatever. Yeah. yeah. But, the, it, you know, we talk about it. I know I've mentioned it even to Chris. It just takes that one email, that one text. Hey, I, 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 I've I been waiting all night to find a spot to share this. And, Brad, I want to tell you, and I'm going to send it to you in the mail. But I, I, I got a message the other day <laughs> on Instagram. What? <laughs> You're going to send me something. I was going to say, is it a 1973 thing? Because I'll take that. No, no it's not Camaro. <laughs> but, it's, but this is better. So I got an email from a guy. Actually, I, I got a, through our info channel at work, I got an email. So it wasn't even me directly. It was somebody trying to find me. 
And he said, greetings, I wanted to reach out and ask if your business address would be acceptable to send a challenge coin to Chris Van Zandt and Brad Thomas. I'm currently an agent with Homeland Security Investigations Miami. It doesn't matter who he is. Um, he used to be an employee of the U.S. Secret Service counter assault team. Back in either 2004 or 2005, we were lucky enough to spend some time at Fort Bragg and meet some members of the unit. Uh, Chris and Brad were true professionals and we were all impressed with their knowledge and modesty. I had a chance to briefly chat with them after our training ended in the team area. They were beyond kind and they never really had, we never really had a chance to thank them for their service and the time they took to train our team at Fort Bragg. Brad, I know you know what this is. It was literally 2005. It was a week that neither one of us wanted to do. I think you actually said to me, no, this would be a good thing. And we spent some time on the range with some folks and we impacted them. And literally a decade later, the guy found me on social media, reached out to me, and he said, thank you too for just being good dudes. Like, forget the fact that we did good training all week. Thanks for just being good people. And I thought it, it was really cool and I thought you need to know that. And I, I have a coin in my hand and he oh, said wow. two. <laughs> he said two and he said, Can you please send one of them to Brad Thomas? And I said, I promise I will. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. At least at least it's not like some stalker chick. <laughs> hey, uh, could you pass this message to Brad Thomas? Uh, <laughs> I met him in Bosnia. I met him in Bosnia in 1998. <laughs> My name is Mihaela. <laughs> that's how I felt. But honestly, it was really cool when I read the whole thing. I was oh, like, holy awesome. shit, dude, that was 405. Like, that's awesome. Yeah, I remember that. And that, that actually turned into, um, we ended up, I don't remember when this was, but I ended up up at their facility and their head guy, um, the GS, you know, 14 or 15 or whatever that was like in charge of their training hit me up about a job and was like, Hey, you want to get out and do this? And, uh, I entertained that for a little, little bit. Um, just cause I was sitting at like, I don't know, 13, 14 years in the army, 14, 15 years in the army or something like that. But yeah. I didn't, I didn't, <laughs> but that's cool. Yeah. It's, it's, that's like I said, the unintended consequence was I didn't know that I would connect with as many people as I have. And, uh, and that's awesome. Like I, every DM that I get on social media, which is a lot, I answer almost all of them. Um, and only the weirdos. <laughs> that was my point. That was my, my point was it was a regular day. It was a regular day that we didn't conduct any different than any other day. And we didn't know at the time the impact it was having on the people that we were with, but it did. It did. It did years later to the point where they felt like, Hey, you know what? I should just say thanks. And it made me, it made me feel amazing. I was like, wow, that's, that's really cool that a guy that's moved on to other things. And that was 20 years ago. A guy remembers that, but I guess the point is, is that like, like just do you man just keep doing it for the right reasons and it it has an impact on people and and stuff like that 
like shows you that, like it reminds you that, that I'm doing it for the right reasons. And, and you know what? I'm, I'm it, it's just a good thing. Yeah. It is what it is. People can see through fake. That's the other thing I've, I've learned pretty, uh, pretty quickly is, you know, if there was a part of this, that was like, we're going to take the money and pocket it, you know, or whatever people see through that stuff all around. And, uh, that's why to me, the money part specifically, I never want to make it a thing because I don't want it to be seen as we're in this for money or we're people. I think the misconception is like, Oh, you released an album. You guys are like, uh, yeah, no, we hardly got anything from that. Like yeah. not even close to what we put into it. Which is why it's all, it's important that you come forward and say something like you did on this episode, which is you put money in, not to mention the time and energy and everything else that is not captured in that cost, but you put already an expense out there, a monetary expense that you put in that is not probably going to be recouped for some period of time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because you're going to donate, not to mention you've got outlets that will at least share your music that are going to be free that you're not going to get paid for. Yeah. So, I mean, if you don't state those things, people make assumptions. Oh, it's on Spotify. Therefore, yeah. they, they're big. They're like rolling in the money. You know, I've had I've had a hard time. You know, one of the things I realized from social media is that um, you can't state the obvious enough. Yeah. But there's like a, a point where you turn people off by stating the obvious. And so there's this fine line and I haven't really figured out what it is, but I still get, where can we find your music? Like, I don't know, dude, Google, you know, like you're on social media looking at this shit. Like, can you take the 15 seconds to open, you know, Safari and Google silence and light and you'll see like it's all over everywhere, you know, um, and people don't do that. But to keep beating the, the horse and say, hey, it's out, you know, you can buy it. You can do, you know, there's I don't know that that's a tough one. That's why we need to get a publicist involved. Yeah. Someone that can, you know, get us to to more outlets, to more people. So people are constantly discovering it, not me going back to the same honeypot and dipping in again, you know, <laughs> Brad, thank you so much for coming in. Really appreciate, uh, again, you sitting down and sharing once again, I, I encourage people to go back to episode 177 and listen to that episode, but obviously we've hit on a lot of different topics than what we did on the first one. And I appreciate you taking time out to stop by the little studio here and sit down with us. Well, appreciate it. The pleasure is all mine. And, and again, it's like you're doing an awesome service by giving people like me, people like Chris, an outlet and a platform to be able to get their message out. So I appreciate this, you know, probably more than you appreciate me being on. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs>